Let us pray together. God, our Father, we call out to you asking for you to open our hearts that we might reflect upon your redeeming grace, that we might acknowledge our need of rescue, and that we might believe wholly upon the rescuer Jesus. Remind us of your redemption, remind us of the gospel, remind us that we are saved for something better even than the Garden of Eden. And I pray that you might enable me to be faithful as a preacher, even as we are faithful as hearers of the Word of God. In Christ's name, amen. Acts 16, 30 through 31, the Philippian jailer cried out to the prisoners, the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas, by saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they, Paul and Silas, answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Please be seated. On September 26 of 2019, the offshore tug, the Bourbon Road, with a crew of 14, was about 1,200 nautical miles from Martinique Island in the Caribbean. It was en route to Guiana from the Canary Islands. And something went terribly wrong. The tug began taking on water in the 110 mile per hour winds and 40 foot seas of Hurricane Lorenzo. A category two storm at the time that quickly strengthened to a category five. The last communication from the crew of the tug was a distress signal. Two days later on September 28th, the, the first vessel to come to the uh, scene was a commercial ship and it confirmed that their bourbon road had sunk. A massive rescue operation was set in place. The rescuers came from three continents and several nations. The U.S. sent two NOAA P-3 aircraft and one Coast Guard C-130. From Europe, a French Falcon jet joined in the rescue. From South America, a French Navy frigate with its Panther helicopter also joined the search. And 21 commercial vessels that set aside their interests quickly joined to search for the crew of the Bourbon Road. Three were recovered who had made it to a rescue vessel. Four bodies were recovered and seven remain missing. While tragic, the sinking of the Bourbon Road illustrates the hope of those who are in peril for a massive rescue operation to be set in motion to save them. 
as we turn to Acts 16.33, the jailers question this distress signal of one who is not in peril on the sea, but in peril in this fallen world, cried out, what must I do to be saved? He implies very strongly something terrible has gone wrong. He was in the midst of a personal crisis, and if we look at the context of Acts 16, 33, it tells the story of Paul and Silas who were arrested in Philippi and in prison in this jailer's prison. They began to pray and sing while in prison, praising God, and the other prisoners listened in. And presumably, the jailer was listening to what Paul and Silas were praying and the words of the songs they were lifting up in praise and worship to God. Now, he did fall asleep, and he was awakened from that slumber because of an earthquake that damaged the structure of the jail such that the doors flung open and the shackles that bound the prisoners were loosened. And the jailer was horrified because the prisoners remaining in prison was his responsibility and an escaped prisoner would cost him his life. But Paul cried out as the jailer was about to take his own life in despair and said, hey, we are all here. And the jailer ran in to the cell and fell down at Paul and Silas's feet in fear. Obviously, he had heard the gospel message, prayed and sung. And he came to realize, I believe, under the work of the Holy Spirit, that his ultimate crisis was not losing prisoners and giving his life for it, but facing God the judge as a sinner and being eternally damned. Something had gone terribly wrong that made him a sinner subject to God's judgment. And his only hope was that there was a massive rescue operation set forth to save him. For as we just sang, he could not save himself. Paul and Silas point him to that massive rescue operation by the rescuer, Jesus, who has redeemed sinners, that they would be saved from God's eternal judgment. We begin a new sermon series today entitled Save to the Uttermost. This title is taken from Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 that is at the top of your worship order. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. In this series, my hope and desire is for us to explore Jesus's massive rescue operation of redemption to save sinners. We will look at the biblical doctrine of salvation. It's also known as soteriology. Our emphasis will be on the order of salvation understood from our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 10 through 15. And just a point of clarification, when we use the term order of salvation, we are not to understand it as referring to a step-by-step chronological process where this step is completed and then it is replaced by a successive one to be completed. Louis Burkhoff explains the order of salvation as describing in their logical order, not chronological, but logical order, and also in their interrelations, the various movements of the Holy Spirit in the application of the work of redemption. And then Anthony Hukuma speaks of the order of salvation in terms of the various simultaneous aspects of the process of salvations, which after they have begun, continue side by side. Next week, we'll turn to the beginning and the end of salvation, which is election and glorification. And then in the weeks following, we will dive in to the means that God has sovereignly given that we might be saved, namely the external call, preaching, evangelism, regeneration, repentance and faith, which is conversion, justification, adoption, and sanctification. Today, my goal is to introduce this sermon series by helping us see the rescue operation, this massive work of Christ to rescue sinners from this fallen world in the context of the broader story of God's redemption, redemption history. You'll find, if you're here in the the sanctuary this morning, you will find an insert in your bulletin And that insert is entitled, God's Story by David Arms. Now, for those who are with us online, uh, you will not find the insert or this particular piece of art in your bulletin, but you can go to your search menu on your browser and just simply enter God's Story, David Arms, and you should be able to follow the links there to have this particular painting at your ready so that you can follow along for the rest of the sermon. This painting was commissioned by Christ Community Church in Franklin, Tennessee back in 2007. Pastor Scotty Smith, the founding pastor of that church, said this, I ache for someone to capture on canvas the story from which all stories come, God's story, as it progressively unfolds in the Bible history and in broken hearts. You'll find four panels of this painting reflecting the four parts of what we understand as the drama of redemption or redemption history. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. 
And I've included a link below the print of this painting so that you can access the narrative that Scotty wrote to help you understand the various elements that explains this grand story of God. And so let's look over this, this, this panorama of God's story of redemption in its four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The creation story in Genesis 1 and 2 is very familiar. God created all that exists out of nothing. He created, as we read in chapter 1, verse 27, man in his own image, male and female, he created them. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden where he called them to, to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it to serve as his stewards, his regent and co-regent, king and queen of his garden. And they could partake of any food from any tree in the garden but one. God provided for them. But the one tree, the fruit from the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in chapter 2, verse 17, they were not to eat. Thus God established the covenant of works with Adam. Adam served as the federal head. If Adam obeyed, he, Eve, and his descendants would enjoy eternal life. They would remain his perfect image bearers. They would continue in a right relationship with God. But if Adam, as the federal head, disobeyed and sinned, if he violated the covenant, chapter 2, verse 17 of Genesis, you shall surely die. In the first state of man, the state of innocence, Adam and Eve possessed the ability not to sin and to sin. Augustine of Hippo used the Latin phrases to depict this first state. Passe non pecare et passe. Pecare, able not to sin and able to sin. In our theological tradition, we speak of Adam having both the liberty and the ability to sin or not to sin. That's the first state of man, the state of innocence. You'll notice in the first panel of David Arm's painting a lush, vibrant, tall tree as the central element of that panel. You'll see a tag down at the left that says life. You'll also observe there are three chickadees that are singing with their beautiful bird voices, but they represent all of creation singing out in praise and adoration of God the Creator. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as we referenced in chapter 2, verse 17, is unspecified. But yet in the painting, and by tradition, the prominent red apple in the upper, cor cor upper corner of that first panel as Scotty Smith observes, represents both God's gracious provision and the loving prohibition he placed on Adam and Eve. At the beginning of God's story, everything was as God meant it to be. It was a, as true a paradise as one could have on earth. But something went terribly wrong 
paradise, to use Milton's phrase, was lost. And who was responsible for this loss? Adam. Genesis 3 introduces the second part of God's story. Man's fall into sin. Eve was deceived by the serpent. And she sinned by partaking of that forbidden fruit. She turned to her husband Adam, who was present with her, observing all, and enticed him to eat. The covenant was broken, and sin and death came into the world when Adam chose to sin against God. Now, as sinners, Adam and Eve experience guilt and shame before God and before one another. Now the beautiful place of blessing became an ugly, scorched place of curse. The serpent was cursed. What God called Eve to focus on the cultural mandate was cursed. What God called Adam to focus on the cultural mandate was cursed. And it was creation itself that was subject to the curse because of Adam's sin. The effects of the fall not only included these curses, but also the curse of physical death and spiritual death. Enmity would mark humanity from this point forward, Genesis 3.15. And the effects of the fall, because Adam was the federal head, would extend to Adam's descendants the human race. Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through the one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The second state of man, the state of nature, is a dramatic change characterized by loss. Adam retained the liberty to obey God and also to not obey God. But by his willful sin against God, the ability to obey God was destroyed in him and his descendants. Thus, Adam's descendants are born with a sin nature. Again, we turn to Augustine's nomenclature. Non passe, non peccare. Not able to not sin is the result of the fall. In Genesis 3, nothing remained as it was meant to be. This is depicted in arms painting in the second panel. The tag down to the left is labeled lost. A tree remains the central focus, but look at that tree in comparison to the first panel. It is stunted. It is barren. It is lifeless. The sky is no longer clear, but overcast and cloudy, dark clouds. If you notice the ravens, one raven is looking to the left as if looking back, longing for the glory in the first panel that has been lost. Another raven in the second panel looks to the right, looking into the future as if anticipating 
maybe there's something more. Maybe the story doesn't end with loss. There is more to the story. Hope for a massive rescue operation to save those in peril in this fallen world. The story of the fall is not the end. The drama of God's story continues into the third part, redemption. God's story unfolds in the pages of Scripture, fulfilling His promises of one who would come and win the victory over the serpent, over Satan, Genesis 3.15. And one who would come and be the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice, that would cover guilty sinners and restore them to a right relationship with God. Genesis 3 and verse 21. Don't miss the promise of the gospel even in the chapter describing the fall. Scotty Smith writes this, the New Testament unambiguously declares that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. His death on the cross fulfills the promise and hope of Isaiah, the passage that um, was read earlier. And all the prophets, Jesus is the main character in the entire story God is telling. And it is by the sacrifice of his blood that we are made whole and creation will be healed one day. If you turn to another passage in Isaiah chapter 53 and begin reading in verse 4 all the way through verse 7, you'll see Isaiah foretelling of Jesus who would come to suffer and die in our place for our redemption. Paul in Romans 5, 18 through 19 recounts the glorious news that, that Jesus came as the second Adam and accomplished what the first Adam failed to do in the garden. Jesus came as the second Adam to restore and to bring life and to overturn the curse of the fall of death. Though every human being will physically die, that's part of the curse, but it's the second death spiritual death that Jesus has overturned for the redeemed. So we read in Romans 5, 18 through 19, Therefore is one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The third state of man is the state of grace. Our theological conviction describes man in the state of grace as this, the ability to obey God has been restored. We've always had the liberty, but now the ability has been restored in redemption. Thus the redeemed man is, is like Adam before the fall, having both the liberty and the ability to obey God and to not obey God. Looking again to Augustine, the, the redeemed 
are graciously enabled to passe non peccare, able not to sin, though they certainly retain the ability and the liberty to sin. God's story by arms depicts Jesus as the main character and his redeeming work, the central message of the Bible. Notice the scarlet thread that you see woven around the four panels, tying the four panels together to make a whole story. Listen, there's one story. It's God's story. As in the previous panels, the tree is central, but look at the tree, beautifully and bountifully restored, transformed, alive. The egg and the butterfly represent the transforming work of Christ in the life of a sinner. Restored, but don't miss this point, not yet in full, because there's something better coming. Life is restored, though not yet in full to what God meant it to be. The effects of the fall are overturned by the love of Christ for sinners. You see the label of that third panel, and the word on it is love. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us something better consummation God's story continues to completion and ultimate fulfillment we live in the already and not yet Christ's kingdom has come restoration has come but not yet in full the day of Christ's second coming all of God's covenant promises will be ultimately fulfilled and we will enjoy fulfillment and consummation revelation 22 1 through 5 serves as a glimpse into fulfillment and consummation in heaven then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystals flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Consummation, fulfillment, glory. That's something better for God's people. I would also encourage you to read at some point Revelation 7, 9 through 12 as we are given that beautiful scene as the elect from the nations are gathered around the throne 
and they worship the Lamb. Something better. Enmity completely destroyed. Fulfillment, glory, consummation. Scotty Smith remarks, the Garden of Eden was just a preview of coming attractions. All things, including creation, will be renewed and restored. And God's people will be redeemed and glorified. And they will be one people together. Of late, I have been longing for unity in the church. And it will remain a longing as long as we live in the third state of man, the state of grace. We see grace working, bringing people together. But we also see disunity in our country, but more importantly, in the church. As I live in the third panel, in the third state, I long for the unity of believers in full. Not yet. But a day is coming when God's people will experience and live in perfect unity. And that will be in Revelation 7 when we are all gathered around the throne as one people with one voice praising the one true God. There's something better even than redemption. The purpose of redemption is for something better. Consummation, fulfillment, heaven. God's story began with something great and it ends with something greater. The fourth state of man is the state of glory. Augustine describes it in this way, non passe peccare, not able to sin. The fourth panel of arms painting represents fulfillment. You see there abundant fruit, bluer skies, a fuller tree, much fuller, much more prominent, much majestic than the other trees. But the most interesting element is the spillover of the scenes. Do you see it on the right side of that fourth panel? It looks like he painted it and when this was printed, he just cut it off. No. The intent of the painter was to, was, was to show that the consummate fulfillment of God's story cannot be contained in a frame. It is too grand. It is too great. It is too massive. And this massive rescue operation that will be our study for the next many weeks 
points to a massive fulfillment that we can't comprehend because it's so great. Even the three birds. <laughs> I'm sure somebody's asking, what are these birds? I'm going to tell you. These three birds are not naturally together. They're not found together. But they're portrayed together. A painted bunting, a hummingbird, and a goldfinch together. Again, pointing to the elect from the nations being brought together as God's people. Unity, oneness. Their brilliant colored feathers represent the various sons and daughters of God from the nations gathered as one people in glory. What a beautiful way to describe the church triumphant. You know, some I've heard long, and I used to think this, I can't wait to get to heaven because it's going to be the Garden of Eden even remade, revisited. That's not so. Heaven is greater than the garden. God's glorified saints will be together as one people, never plagued again with sin, free at last. In conclusion, the story of the Bourbon Road reminds us that we live in a world that is suffering terribly from the effects of the fall and things go terribly wrong and the only hope is a massive rescue operation to save this story points us however to the greater story God's story the story began as God meant creation to be and something went terribly wrong Adam sinned and sin and death were the result for him, for Eve, and for his descendants. But the raven in that second panel, looking to the right, looking to the future, points us to the hope that indeed a massive rescue will be undertaken. And that massive rescue mission was undertaken to save sinners from eternal judgment. The rescuer is the son, the beloved son of God. And it is because of this that the apostle Paul and Silas were able to say to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It is why I am able to say, as I stand here today and as I proclaim to you, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Because of this massive rescue operation, because of Jesus, the rescuer that came to redeem sinners, to rescue them and save them from eternal judgment, we are able to stand and declare to the world, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And we're able to also say that none whom Jesus sets out to rescue will be lost. They will be brought safely 
to something better, consummation. We have the great privilege and blessing in the coming weeks to explore together Jesus' rescue operation in saving sinners. In saving sinners like you and me. Saving us to the uttermost. I would say to you that is a privilege and a blessing worth giving our hearts, minds, and bodies to exploring. Let us pray. God, our Father, we come before you with joy in our hearts as we contemplate the big story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Though we admit your story, you had every right to end the story at the fall. That we would all suffer the penalty for breaking your covenant. As our father, Adam, broke the covenant as our federal head. But Father, your love and grace and mercy are so beautifully seen, even in that raven depicting another chapter of the story that is redemption and ultimately consummation. I pray, Father, that you would work such that we would not forsake this time to give ourselves to reflecting upon your story, the story of redemption, the story of the rescuer Jesus, the story of his massive rescue operation to save us from peril, the peril of judgment in this fallen world. And we pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.